As most of you know, my father was a minister and I absolutely hated it. There's just a lot of baggage associated with having a, a father who's a minister. The first time I became aware of this was when I was in junior high. I believe it was the first day of class, the very first class. After we were seated, the teacher said, I want all of you to say your name and what your parents do for a living. And when it was my turn, I said my name, and then I said my dad's a pastor. And you could have heard a pin drop. Everyone's looking at me like, oh, that's what a pastor's kid looks like, a PK, they call them, PKs. I hated being singled out like that. That same year in November, we had a Thanksgiving meal that we were going to be having together as a class. And the teacher said, uh, Tim, since your dad is a, a minister, do you mind saying the prayer for the meal? Yes, I do. <laughs> you know, like I'm 10 or 11. My dad's, the, my dad's the minister. I'm not the minister. And this was a public school, the thought of doing this. I mean, I agreed to do it, I'm sure, but... But I really hated it. I just really hated it. And I can understand just a little bit why it is that oftentimes PKs or preacher's kids have the reputation of being the worst kid in town. Because there's just something about um, that environment that makes you want to break out, to prove that you're normal. Um, and so you walk away sometimes with it from your parents and from the church and from the faith that you grew up with. I could see why people would do that. And so growing up, I kind of got tired of people apologizing for saying bad words in my presence, as if somehow my ears were a little bit too holy to hear things like that, or people making the comment, well, your dad doesn't work for a living, or he only works on the weekends. I, I still get that. And it's not always easy. I remember one time on the bus coming home, the whole bus began to chant, preacher man discount. Together, preacher man discount, preacher man discount. They were referring to the fact that ministers sometimes are, are smiled favorably upon by businesses or whatever, and so they're referring to that discount you supposedly got. I hated it. And I would have, I think, walked away from the faith. I would have rejected it, as I know some of my pastor's sons and daughter friends have done, had it not been for the reality of Christ all along that I put my faith in Christ when I was five, it, it, is, it was real. I came to realize Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I began a relationship with God through faith in Christ, I, and it, it changed my life. Every time I was facing these types of things, then I was able to turn it to God. And instead of my faith being weakened, it was actually strengthened. Now, many of you know what I'm talking about here today because you've experienced that. Your life has been changed dramatically through Christ, and nothing could change your mind. There are others of you here today that have not yet come to a place where you know where you stand with God, or you don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, some of you might be thinking, I didn't know that's possible. How do you have a relationship with someone who lived and died and rose again from the dead 2,000 years ago? How do you have a relationship with him? And it is possible. And we discover through the pages of the Bible that he's not just the savior of the world, but he's our creator. And he's someone with whom we can have this relationship. Now today we're beginning this new series based on the book of Colossians. And the, the book of Colossians is about, well, it's about Jesus. Whole book points to Jesus as being the answer, Jesus being the, the solution, Jesus being what it's all about. 
And today specifically, I want to focus on, on the changes that take place, the new things that take place when you put your faith in Christ. In other words, today I want to focus on just that beginning point. The moment somebody puts their trust in Jesus, who died and was buried and raised again for them, where you realize you've sinned against God and you need a Savior and you reach out to Jesus and you make him the object of your trust, there are a number of things that happen immediately, new things that happen, and our lives are changed. Now, I get what my takeaway is going to be this morning from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6. I'm making the point that Jesus changes everything today. The Colossians 1, 6, and I'm reading today out of the New Living Translation. It goes this way. This same good news or gospel that came to you is going out all over. I'm sorry, that is going out all over the world is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. He's making the point that this message of this good news has spread everywhere. It's changing lives everywhere it's going and it changed your lives and you know it. But today I want to address in what ways has it changed our lives. I'd like to begin reading the book, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Why don't you follow along as I read, where Paul writes, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God, our Father, give you grace and peace. Now, let me stop for a moment. The this first chapter is very introductory and it's foundational to the rest of it, but I want to give you just a little bit of the background information. Paul wrote this as a letter to the believers in Christ who lived in the city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. Most of the letters of the New Testament or books of the New Testament are actually epistles or letters. You may not have realized that, but we call it the book of Colossians, but it's really a letter. Letter that he wrote to the church there. Some of the New Testament letters were written to individuals. I love the fact, though, that Paul is the one who wrote this as a prison epistle, it's called, because he was in prison when he wrote it, along with Timothy. Uh, but I love the fact that Paul's the one that wrote about this because he's an example of the changed life that he's writing about here. Because Paul used to hate Christians, and Paul used to hate Christianity. In fact, he was on his way to the city of Damascus to destroy Christians and Christianity when he met Jesus, or rather, Jesus met him, kind of stopped him in his tracks, as the expression goes, knocked him off his horse, literally. Jesus appeared to him and revealed his identity to Paul, that, that he was indeed the savior of the world, that he was the creator of all, and the one that Paul was persecuting. Suddenly, Paul believed suppose if you meet Jesus in this way, it would lead to belief. But what's significant to me about it is that I, I love the fact that someone who was an enemy of Christ is now a believer and, and preaching the very message he tried to extinguish before it, to me, lends credibility to the whole thing. See, we as Christians can say certain things, but when you have somebody that, was, that hated Christians, he was responsible for killing Christians, and now you find that he's proclaiming the same message, it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, that he tried to extinguish. To me, that lends credibility, and the guy ended up dying as a martyr for this message. 
You would not backpedal from it. It was, it was true, and that's what he's writing about here. But a number of things happen when a person puts their faith in Christ that he writes about. Paul describes these recipients of this letter in kind of a unique way. He says in verse 2, and let me read it again, it says, we're writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So the first change that I want us to understand that takes place with us when we put our faith in Christ is that we get a new identity. That's the first thing that happens. The moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you get a brand new identity. I base this on the fact he called them holy ones. He's writing to the holy ones. Most of your translations translate this saints. Now, the New Living Translation didn't call it saints because they, they realize that when people see the word saints, they get an idea in their mind. Some of you came from religious backgrounds where, where you venerated saints. And so, the, the, you know, saints are people who have died and oftentimes there's someone who's performed some miracle or something and you regard the, them as dead people, but when Paul is using the term here, they're people who are very much alive. He's describing you and me, which suddenly kind of changes things like, I, I'm a saint. You're a saint. Now, what does it mean by that? Well, the word means to be set apart or de dedicated or consecrated to God. It's our new identity. In biblical times, when people was off were offering something to God, whether it be an animal to be sacrificed or fruits or vegetables, they would bring this offering to God, and it was the, in the best shape possible. They'd pick the best of their, their flock, the best of their crops, and they'd bring them to the temple, and they would offer them at the temple there to God or to the gods if they were from a pagan background. But they'd bring them to the god or gods. The moment that they changed hands... The moment the priest accepted the sacrifice, it was called holy. It was something that had been secular a moment ago, but now it's sacred. Something that came from the world a moment ago, but now it's dedicated to God. That's what Paul is describing here. Many of his letters, he, he writes the letters to the saints in this place and the saints in that place because he wants us to see this new identity. Now, I have to wonder what would happen if we began to see ourselves through this lens? What if you saw yourself as a set-apart one for God? I'm one of his set-apart ones. I'm a saint. This is my new identity. I'm a saint. I, I understand it's odd. If you walk around thinking, I'm a saint, you know, my wife might disagree. You know? <laughs> We're dedicated to God, though. And Paul brings this up in all of his letters because he wants us to begin thinking differently about ourselves to realize we're dedicated to God and that should impact how we live our lives. It should impact how we live our lives. We get this new identity. But there's something else that is new that he describes in the, these first two verses and that is that we get a new family. We get a, a brand new family. He described that this letter was to be written to the brothers and sisters in Christ in this city, or some of your versions say the brethren. It's, it's referring to guys and girls, but he's pointing out that there's a new family relationship you have both to God the Father and to one another, and he wants them to understand that. 
In John 1.12, one of Jesus' closest friends said, when we receive Christ, when we make him the object of our trust, we become children of God. We're immediately adopted into God's family. And suddenly we begin to relate to God as a heavenly father. Now, I recognize that for some of you, if, if your father wasn't the most loving individual or, or he was absent or whatever, it's hard to view God a little bit as a heavenly father Although I'd like to view him as the father maybe you never had or the father that could be because he cares so desperately for us. Our father loves when we ask him for things. He loves to provide for our needs. That's the father that we love and serve. I think what God wants to do many times those kind of reparent us a little bit. But in addition to that, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now Jesus introduced that idea when he was doing ministry. It was a time where he was with a bunch of people in a house and suddenly his mother and brothers came to see him. And word reached Jesus, presumably he's in the center of the house and he's surrounded by people and they're standing outside and word comes to Jesus, your mother and brothers are out there. It's the only time I can think of that Jesus completely ignored his family. He completely ignored them. Now he understood that they were actually coming for reasons that didn't fit his direction. They thought he'd actually gone off the deep end at this point in the story. They thought he was just talking all the time and didn't even have time to eat and we need to come and get you, you know? Jesus knew that and he said no to his family but when he was told that, your mother and brothers are out there, his response was this, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Is it not you? You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. The first time I began to understand how a church could be a spiritual family, I think, was really when I got to Ohio State. I left home to go to college, Bible college, first in Chicago, said goodbye to mom, dad, to my brothers, said goodbye to my dogs. I left my family behind. Then I went to Bible college, but it, it, it was close. We lived in the suburbs, but when I moved to Columbus, I was far away and I needed a family at that point, and it was at that point that I came to understand how these, my roommates who went to the same church and other friends I had, they became like brothers and sisters for me, and I developed a love for them, and I realized this, this is what God had in mind. That we could be brothers and sisters to one another, and it does matter that we view each other as family, because you do view family differently, don't you? I've mentioned before that uh, my brothers and I got along fairly well, but my twin brother and I especially didn't get along with our older brother. He was three years older. We were always fighting each other. Uh, or not always, but enough. And uh, I have a confession to make at this point. I shared a story uh, not too long ago about how when we were with my older brother on occasion that my twin brother would pretend that my older brother was hitting him. And so I'd say, Dan, stop hitting me. Dan, stop hitting me. Dan wasn't hitting him. But Dan would get in trouble. Parents would come in, they'd believe my twin brother, and they'd spank my oldest brother. It was wonderful. <laughs> but that's not the confession. The confession is I was talking with Dan about this, and he said, no, Tim, you're the one that did that. I just didn't think I was that evil. I, I was sure it was my evil twin. He, he insists it was me. Uh, I don't know that I'd believe him except my twin brother said the same thing. 
But you know, we didn't get, we didn't get along very much, but there were a couple occasions where my brother stood up for me. One was an occasion where we were playing football in the backyard of one of our neighbors, and I tackled this kid. I tackled him a little too hard, not on purpose, but I drove him into a shrub. And his older brother saw me do it, and his temper took over. He came and grabbed me, knocked me to the ground, and began pounding me in the face. My older brother was not happy about that. See, he lifted weights. In fact, one of the things we used to tease him about, and I hate to admit this too, but he was so strong and he had big muscles and he was big in the chest, we suggested he actually needed a bra. <laughs> I mean, we didn't get along, but when it came down to someone else turning on us, that's my brother. That's my brother. See, there's a way in which we view each other for brothers and sisters in Christ. In the book of Galatians, it says, do good to everybody, but especially those of the household of faith. We view one another differently. So we have this new identity, and we have this new family. The third thing that's new that we receive is a new destiny. We continue reading in verse 3 where Paul says, we always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people which come, in other words, your faith and love come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. Let me just stop there. He's reminding them that the moment they first believed they had an inheritance, they received something Related to the future, they received eternal life. They, became, they received a reservation in heaven, which is a wonderful thing. Oftentimes, this is what we talk with people about when we want to share Jesus Christ with them. We want them to understand that we want them to be with us in heaven. And it only takes place through Jesus Christ, that through faith in Christ is the only way a person gets to heaven. Some of you may struggle with that, but here's why it's the case. We're sinful people. We all blow it. Most people will admit it. We'll only run into one that didn't. A student at Ohio State, he said he never sinned until his brother or his roommates are laughing. He said, I never sinned. You know, no, everyone, we know we do it. We blow it. We're not perfect, but heaven is. You're disqualified. I'm disqualified. We're disqualified from going to heaven. If you go as you are, you'd ruin it. You know, it's like, boy, if you go up to heaven, there's a sinner up there now. The only way any of us will ever get to heaven is if our sins be removed from us. The way David wrote it in the Old Testament, as far as the east is from the west. Just keep going. Take the sin this direction as far as it'll go. Take it, me the other direction. I, I don't want anything to do with the sin. It has to be removed from us, and the only way that happens is by allowing Jesus Christ to take it for you. That's what was happening at the cross. The sin of the world was being charged against Jesus. He, he volunteered to say, I'll take it all upon myself, the penalty for everything that everyone has done wrong. Charge it against me. Declare me guilty so that you can declare them not guilty. Slap the sin on me completely. Let me be so identified. It says, Paul wrote, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. 
He so identified with sin, he became sin for us so that we might become, Paul wrote, the righteousness of God. So that when God sees us, he sees righteousness. That's the only way you get to heaven. And Paul is reminding his readers about that. You put your faith in Christ, your sin is removed from you. But if a person dies in their sin, the sin has not been removed from them, then you're disqualified from being with God in heaven. That's just the way I understand it from the pages of the Bible, from the beginning to the end. Our sin clings to us and disqualifies us. Jesus came to remove our sin from us. So you put your trust in Jesus to be your savior and it's removed from us. There's a fourth thing we receive though. We get this new identity and a new family, an eternal destiny. The next two things both come out of verses 13 and 14 as we skip ahead just a little bit. In verse 13 we read, for he, God, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. I see two things here. One is that we we are placed into a new kingdom. You get a new kingdom, and the second thing that happens is, is that you get a new beginning, a new start. So let me talk about each of those things. First of all, some of us may struggle with this idea, that, but when, if you've not put your faith in Christ, you're not in Christ's kingdom. I mean, look at, look at verse 13 again. For he, God, rescued us, rescued, rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and then he transferred you to the kingdom of Jesus. There are two kingdoms out there. One's called this kingdom of darkness. The average person would not like to think I'm in the kingdom of darkness. I mean, if you ask the average person, are you in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness? They'll all say, I'm in the kingdom of light, of course. Well, it depends if you know Jesus. Jesus came introducing a kingdom. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom where he rules. You know, if we want to understand what the kingdom of darkness is, it's the kingdom where the devil rules. But the kingdom of light is where Jesus rules. And so Jesus was asked before he was crucified, so you are a king, Pilate asked him. And he said, yes, but my kingdom's not of this world. The kingdom of heaven is defined as where God rules and specifically, it's within the hearts of his people. And so we as Christians live differently because Jesus lives in us. We're part of his kingdom. And one day, it's going to be a physical kingdom in which he's going to rule. But in the meantime, he's ruling in the hearts of his people, getting his will done through the hearts of his people. But the devil is ruling in the hearts of his people, and he's getting his work done through the hearts of his people. The only thing that distinguishes the two is whether you know King Jesus now, Paul wrote about what it looks like in Ephesians 2 and verse 2 to be in the kingdom of darkness. He wrote, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And specifically, it's people who have not put their trust in Jesus Christ, received, placed their trust in him to be their savior is what Paul is talking about. He's ruling in their hearts. But when we put our trust in Jesus, a transfer takes place. A rescue takes place. It's like he comes in there ninja style and he grabs you and he yanks you out and he says, you don't belong in this kingdom, you're over here. This is one of the reasons, by the way, I believe that when a person puts their trust in Christ, they can be secure that they'll go to heaven no matter what. 
that your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, because a transfer took place. It, it wasn't just a temporary thing. Come over here for a little while. Then when you're bad, go back over there. And then when you're ready, come back. It doesn't work that way. You belong to Jesus, King Jesus. But not everyone is in that kingdom. And so Jesus said the to the religious leaders of his days, as you're of your father, the devil. That's the kingdom you're part of. I came to bring a new kingdom for those that acknowledge me as king. But there's one other thing here that we get. It's a clean slate. We're reading verses 13 and 14 again. He rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Forgiveness is the clean slate. Forgiveness is the new start. He provides complete forgiveness and erasing of all, that, all of that so that it's a brand new. That's why Paul said, if, it, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And there's no sin that you can commit that's beyond the ability of Jesus to forgive. No sin. Paul understood that. Paul made this claim. He said, I'm the worst of all sinners. And yet, God delivered me. God saved me for that very reason. Because if I can be forgiven, if I can be cleansed, anybody can be cleansed. Anyone can be forgiven. And that's what Christ does for us. Now, many of your versions say you were redeemed. It uses the word redeemed by the blood of Christ. The word redeemed means to pay a price to secure the release from bondage. And so let's talk about Jesus paid the price on the cross to release you from bondage to this kingdom so that you could be legally and eternally transferred from the one into the other, and so you get a new kingdom. Now, what should we do with this? I see these five changes, a new identity, a new family, a new destiny, a new kingdom, a new beginning. In a moment, I wanna read the last few verses, the ones I skipped from the section we're looking at here that apply to all Christians. But if you have not yet put your trust in Christ, that's the step for you. For some of you, you haven't taken that step. Where you've acknowledged you, you need a savior and you put your trust in Jesus. It's as simple as that. Coming to a point where you say, I, I, I blow it, I sin, I can't fix it. And I wanna put my trust in you, Jesus. As, as John put it, as many as receive him as savior. To those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become his children. If you put your trust in Jesus because he died and was buried and raised again for you, the resurrection proved God accepted the payment on your behalf, you have to trust him to be your savior. That's it. And most do it through a prayer. God, I, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I say yes to Jesus. I receive him as my savior. If you're already a Christian, I want to just close with these verses that I skipped, verses 9 through 11, and a quick summary of it. But Paul said he was praying for these believers whom he had never met. In verse 9, he says that we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard of you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy. Let me just mention that these are all the things that I think characterize what then this new faith walk should look like. 
the things he prays for are the things that need to be true in our lives. I encourage you to read it on your own, study it on your own, but what are the things he prays for? That they'd know God's will. Know God's will for your life. Second, that you'd live to please Christ. That's what it's about. Third, you bear fruit through your life, that your faith is borne out through the things you do. Fourth, that you'd know God better and better and better and better. Fifth, that you grow strong in his power, not your own. And sixth, that you'd be filled with joy. These are things that I think should characterize our lives. And a lot of these things will be fleshed out in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus, and thank you for loving us so much that you'd be willing to adopt us into your family. We're so grateful to you, Lord. We, we deserve judgment. We deserve, oh Lord, eternal judgment. And yet we thank you that through Jesus we can have life and forgiveness. Thank you for the joy and power that's available. Thank you, Lord, that we're ones who can bear fruit for you and glorify you with our lives now. If any don't know you, I pray they'd find you today. But Lord, help us to live in the reality of who we are, to recognize the new things that are true in our lives because of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.